This episode is brought to you by Arden Labs Education. Sign up today to learn advanced concepts in Go, Docker, Kubernetes, Terraform, and more. Visit ardenlabs.com forward slash education for more information. Welcome to the Arden Labs podcast coming to us all the way from Sunnyvale, California, is Piyush Verma. Piyush, thank you, man, for, for joining us today. Thanks, Bill. I've seen a lot of your work, heard a lot about you, and we've met in the past. Amazing to be here. And we've met a bunch of times at conferences over the year as well, and we tend to run into each other, and we, it's our time to kind of catch up. And I thought you'd be a, a really great guest here for the podcast because... You're somebody who's both in tech and very much kind of an entrepreneur. I, I think that's kind of cool. And I, and I really wanted to kind of talk to you about some of that stuff as we, as we learn more about your sort of history, but give, give everybody a, like a two minute um, sort of story around what you're doing today. Thanks, Bill. Uh, likewise, uh, I've met you at uh, almost at conferences, all of the Golang circuit. What we are, we, we're building last night. Uh, Last9 is a site reliability engineering platform. So we create a construct tools which help engineering teams overcome the SRE challenges. Now, traditionally, every time you have a software as your business grows, and as these softwares become complex, become distributed in nature, we end up resulting in situations where we realize reliability and availability of our applications is almost an aftermarket thing. Once it is built, then we try to do things to make them reliable and available. Uh, we hire a bunch of teams for this, and which we call them as SREs these days. I mean, thanks to Google, this term has almost become a commodity now. And <clears throat> then we build a handful of tools around it, or they build a handful of tools around it. Now, the trouble is, these tools almost feel like assembling things from IKEA every time. They're not readily available. There are smaller, smaller fragments, raw materials available out there. And then you assemble them to make a flavor of observability, reliability that you want to operate at. This is tedious. We cut that chase and we have built these tools. Uh, to give you an analogy, think what HashiCorp did for almost infrastructure as code. We try to build something very similar as tools for SRE needs. Now, one of our latest offering has been a whole time series uh, database warehouse, which is built on top of the need that when you have metrics coming in from the application, there's a life cycle management that you need to perform. So give you an example. These are the things that we do and there's a lot more. I hope that gives an explanation of uh, a quick rundown of what we do or we can take that again. It, it does. And before I we jump into the time machine, I, I do want to ask you a couple more questions here and then at the, at the end we can ask more i find the idea of sre to be uh, mysterious now why am i saying that like i'm a software developer i build product i know that stuff has to run in production i know we have to somewhat sort of monitor that and make sure that it's working and identify failures so we can fix bugs um but this whole idea of like reliability engineering has always been this abstraction to me. And I, I, I can't even imagine what I'm doing each and every day in that role. So 
I don't know if I'm the only one listening that has no clue what this actually means, but what is a person who's an SRE, like what is their day to day or week to week and how much does, how much support do they need from developers in order to do their job? To explain what SRE is, uh, let me draw an analogy to civil engineering. Uh, you, you construct houses uh, and these houses have a guarantee of safety, which is required. Now, let's take an example. I mean, uh, hopefully uh, one doesn't have to face that, but let's take an example of uh, these fire extinguishers, the fire part, right? Fire is a threat to civil engineering to construct houses that we construct. There are firefighters who come in after things have gone bad. It's extremely talented, skilled people, uh, extraordinary humans. We all know the stories that they do of how their valor and how their courage and their grit allows to save so many lives. But if you ever ask a fireman, what is the best way to deal with it? And the answer that they will give is the best way to deal with it is to avoid it in first place. This is exactly what SRE is. Extremely talented people who know how to deep down, go into the deepest corner of your network, of your disk <clears throat> or your CPU, and then solve those problems, which may be choking something. Uh, too many database connections or, you know, IOPS running out or a logic fault or an AB, AB deployment going bad, a red-green deployment going bad, pods getting evicted, could be anything, you know, could be could be a bad configuration of Go runtime. One place we are using Seago compiled binary, the other way we are not using a Seago compiled binary. Could be any of these things. And the best way to do solve that is to avoid them. Now, this is the role of an SRE on day-to-day -day basis. First call of duty is to avoid a fire. You know, once it is there, actually solve, solve a fire. Now it is there, I'm gonna to jump towards it. I'm gonna do everything that can be done to mitigate that issue. Now it doesn't stop there. There are two more important functions that need to be performed. Second is, how do I make sure that this is not spread? I gotta contain it. And this is extremely important because whenever you see a degradation or a downtime, it's quite inevitable that it's gonna spread across other places as well, because it is a bad configuration, a bad code or bad something somewhere. It's only a matter of time it shows up in other places. Quickly understand, think on your feet, remember your architecture and understand, oh, this could be happening at other places as well, because you don't want every degradation to be solved reactively. You want to use that as an immediate lesson to understand what else can go down. Third one is coming up with a strategy by which this can be avoided all together. What do I need? What are those early warnings that I need? What are those leading indicators that I need? By which the next time I see this is happening, I can prevent an outage altogether. To draw an analogy back to firefighters, what they will tell you is the best way to avoid this is install sprinklers, is to detect, is to build those fire detection alarms, those smoke alarms everywhere, in the passageway, in the hallway, in the kitchen, so that you have a leading indicator to when something catastrophic can happen because you can only minimize the loss, not prevent it. So at SRE, your first job and the foremost at the pinnacle of it is to somehow build enough tool chain and operability effectiveness so that you can avoid these to begin with.
Does that does that give you an idea of what it does? Actually, I I love the analogy because I think my brain always was like, well, there's the the fire is being caused by a bug in the software. It has nothing to do with networks and clusters and configuration. This bug just exists. You can't get rid of it. So like what is an SRE to do when the bug keeps causing the service to panic, right? You can't necessarily replace the code. Now, I like the idea of the of the um, the detector up in the ceiling that's identifying that things this this keeps happening so we can jump on it. But my brain's always going back to if the bug if the code is crashing or causing problems has nothing to do with anything outside of it. How does an SRE deal with that situation? When does that developer have to get involved and does the developer have to provide internal metrics? For the SRE, or can everything be gathered outside that binary itself? Great question there, and this is something that I actually get asked often. And uh, one of the ways to look at this is: imagine there's an outage right now. I'll give you four options to pick from. One, you can go fix the code in real time. Assume I tell you where the problem is. Right. Second, I give you ways to contain the spread of that. Now, containment could be done either as a scale-up. Uh, you may decide, <clears throat> well, I can bump up the infrastructure by 3x in the moment because maybe this is a bad connection limit somewhere. Maybe it could be either of those. It's a wide variety of bugs that may happen. Third would be there's an option to circumvent this code path as well. Now, I'm going to, I'll go into the details of it. And the fourth one is to communicate. So one is a code fix. The other is to uh, contain it. The third is to circumvent it. And fourth is to communicate about it. Now let's go into the de details of what each one means. Containment would mean scale up, as we just discussed. Circumvention would mean, let's say I depend on a third party service. And I realize that there is a logic fault here. I'm calling a payment provider or an SMS provider. And that thing has started failing. One of the ways, and could be a drastic one as well, could be we will bypass the OTP on login for a moment. We don't want our users to have bad experience. We'll simply say that this login flow would actually simply bypass it. I'll give you funny incidents that I've seen people do around it. One, one, one time I remember this website and they were depending on, I don't know whether it was Twilio or something for an outbound uh, SMS. And that SMS had started failing they had millions of users who were trying to log in at that point of time because it was a live media event. The SREs did a quick hack there. They said, what we'll do is we'll actually print the OTP right there in front of them <laughs> at the login screen itself because the external party is down. It's a, it's a security hack that they did, but they wanted users to come in. Now, this is called circumvention, right? You want to just go, you want to bypass that whole bad flow altogether or these are things that hacks that you would deploy because you want to make sure that the users do not get impacted. And the last one is communicated. Uh, assume you're B2B. I'm, I'm taking a wide variety of things here. Assume you're B2B. Assume I'm on the other side. I'm a payment provider. I know that one of my customers is getting impacted or a segment of my customers is getting impacted. I can reach out to them and say, hey, could you not use the debit card 
and hey, can you use the credit card channel and give us an hour to fix this? In all of these four, you would realize the option number one, which is find the code and fix it in real time is the least effective one. What is the most effective is actually the remainder of the three. And those are the first things that we always tend to ignore. You know, as software engineers, we always think that the fault can always be solved by writing the code. Think about it. We're talking about five nines here, things that have to be up and running, finding the code, fixing it, making sure the test harness runs, a continuous deployment happens, a CD job running, a GitHub action running. Oh, well, we are above already 20 minutes. Five lines would mean you only have four minutes to react. Not possible. Uh, is that capturing the imagination to see? Dude, it's, it's brilliant because I've never been able to imagine how an SRE could fix a problem without me giving them a code fix. But I guess if the infrastructure that you're running that code in is flexible enough, then you have options to do these other three things that you've said. And in my head, I've never deployed my own sort of infrastructure for that to even be possible. I can't even imagine how you write, and maybe Kubernetes is part of being allowing you to do that. But and I, I want to get to your story, but my brain's never been able to kind of formulate a picture visualization of how you could even do that. So this is brilliant, dude. I, I want to get back to this at the end of the uh, of the show because I have more questions, but this is the best it's ever been explained to me. So hopefully others listening to this uh, who are as clueless as I was about 10 minutes ago. Okay, we're going to get back to all of that. I think that's fascinating. And now I can imagine at some level some of the tooling that you're trying to help provide SREs so they quickly deal with those three choose one of those other three options and quickly deploy something to help. Now, that's super interesting. But this is really a podcast about you. I want to know how you got to you know, where you are today, that, that journey that you, you went through. So a couple of questions before we start. Kind of where did you grow up and go to school, like grade school? Oh, so I grew up in a town next to New Delhi, uh, this is the capital of India and it's a, it was a small industrial town. My dad used to work there and that's where I went to school and college and all of that before, uh, well, our jobs take us to the rest of the world and, uh, you never find so remote was not a thing when, uh, when we were growing up. So finding a job in your town that to a software job would have been impossible. Uh, so that's where I grew up. It's a quaint, uh, industrial town. What year did you, I'm going to call it grade school. So what year did you finish grade school that like last year before you went to university? This is something very interesting and I've not gotten used to it. So help me. Grad school is something that you go after your high school and the early part, right? The way you... Not grad, grade, oh. not grad, oh, grade, grade school. Grade oh, okay. school. So like kindergarten, one, two, three, four, like in the States, it ends at 12th grade. Um, and then you can apply to university. Got it. That was year 2002 that I okay, finished that. Okay, cool. That just gives us a time frame for things, 2002. Okay, so here's my first question. Here's my first question. Don't, don't think too hard. Just, just kind of let it come naturally. Tell me that very first moment that you kind of worked on a computer 
where it was kind of magical, where you had this sort of like, oh my God, I can do this or that, but whatever that moment is, like, do you remember that kind of first magical moment? Absolutely. And uh, I have a very distinct memory of that moment. And I'll tell you, it is very interesting that you asked me this question. Uh, so I, I, I've sketched cartoons all my life. And uh, growing up, I would do that, draw caricatures, you know, like pick up a pen and a pencil. In fact, I'm funny, I'm carrying one right now in my hand as well. And, uh, you know, doodle, draw quick cartoons, etc. and all that thing. Uh, one thing that used to, and you know, when you're, when you're sketching, it, what is important is three things. The medium on which you're sketching, the way you're presenting, and the the lead, the pencil, everything makes a big difference, you know, and how it's going to come out. That fine line becomes a gradient line and that, and with some anti-aliasing effect in there because the graphite smudges over, it's all amazing. If you try to take a photo of it and share it, it loses that effect. Like something which is drawn on a double bond paper will never reach out the same way. Now, uh, <clears throat> but I mean, I, I was too young to realize it at such subtle level. And I got access to computers and I opened a website somewhere and it just so happened. I don't know how it happened or why it happened. I, for a moment, I saw that on somebody else's screen as well on a monitor. And what occurred to me was there is somebody who has built something and it is being experienced alike. There is no loss in translation. There is no loss in experience there's no loss in in the feeling an artist i mean i would like to call every software engineer an artist here an artist imagined something built something people received it in the exact same manner so if you got it right on your computer that is exactly how everybody else is going to consume it as and like this is brilliant this is lossless lossless work happening so to a true artist if they could see if they could capture their imagination and they could see it right then there in front of them millions out there are going to see it the exact same way and that's the moment i actually got hooked into computer science and like i got to learn this thing i got to learn how do people build all of this because if i had an idea somewhere and i could somehow build it that is it I'm just guaranteed that everybody else is going to consume it in the exact same manner. So the moment can be replicated for everybody. Does that, does that kind of give you a... A couple things. How old were you when you had that experience? Do you remember what grade or how old you were? Yeah, I was 16 when I had that. Okay. I think this is the most amazing, fascinating, one of the most amazing, fascinating stories I've ever heard. You were... You were, and I, I wish Eric was listening to this right now. So Eric, I, I, even though nobody can hear or see you right now, Piyush is, he's, he's 16, he's drawing sketches with pencil and paper, and he's frustrated that every time he takes a picture of it, it's not an exact representation of what he's drawn because the picture is losing some sort of detail in what he sees, okay? And he's, he's frustrated by that because he can't share his picture with anybody outside of a personal relationship that he has. And he goes to a website and he notices that there's a website which is very, regardless what the website is doing, he realizes that somebody did this art, 
drew this page, laid out these words, did these things. And he has this light bulb that says, oh my God, every single person on the planet that comes to this page is gonna see the exact representation, unlike what I can do today on pencil and paper with a picture. And that hooks him into this idea that if he can now do things on the computer, he doesn't have to worry about being disappointed that nobody can see the work that he can, that he's doing and the level and quality and detail that gets lost in a, like, this is mind blowing, Eric. Have you ever had that experience? Eric, and nobody can hear Eric right now, but Eric's a, one of the most amazing artists I've ever met. So I, I had to share the story like that with him. So nobody can hear there, but Eric is basically saying, yes, I've had a, had a very similar experience doing traditional art and not being able to share the cool stuff that he did. Um, and I imagine now, okay, so I've never been an art person. Dude, you just opened up light bulbs and doors for me. Like my, you just blew my mind here because I'm not an art person. When I have to go to an art museum, I just do it out of like duty, right? And I look at the pictures and I'm not into abstract art. I like the ones that are really detailed and realistic, whatever kind of art that is. But I never realized I am now. Now I want to go to now I want to go to an art museum because I never realized that I was losing an experience when I saw a picture of it as opposed to looking at it live. And I'm going to start doing that now. I'm going to start looking at a picture of a piece of art and then when I'm in front of it. And I, oh my God, dude, you just like changed my life with this whole idea of the detail that you lose unless you're there in front of it. But with the computer, every little detail, every little aspect, every little thing you did is there because it's digitally being represented and it can be sent everywhere the same way. That's amazing. Amazing. Okay. And you're 16. So you're in the middle of kind of finishing your grade school. So how life changing is this like, does this kind of change your whole perspective now on what you want to do once you graduate um, grade school and, and start thinking about university? To begin with, I would say it ruined me because, uh, you know, when you're, when you're growing up and you have your plans uh, and, you know, nowhere in that plan, it would show up as that, hey, I want to be a, a computer science guy. One day I want to be a software engineer one day and you run into this and decide this is all I'm going to pursue. Now you've got to convince your parents about it, the education that goes behind it, the infrastructure, the material, the internet, the computer that you've got to procure so that you become an effective, uh, effective engineer as you learn. And so it does change the course of things. But I think that is what got hooked me into computer science. And uh, if you, I mean, uh, if you allow me to a moment to actually connect the same story to how I got interested in SRE as well, I think the passage is exactly the same. Uh, should I go on and tell that as well? No, no, I, I want to do that at the end. So at the end, I'm going to ask you to, I'm going to see if I make the connection. If I can't make the connection, I'm going to ask you, but I feel like I'm going to make that connection, which would be kind of a cool way to end this. Um, but so, so what do you do now? You've got, you've got like two more years, at least of grade school. You're now like, I got to get a computer. I got to start learning this stuff. Are there classes at school that you can now take? So what do you do for those now two years, let's say 16 to 18, to get yourself in that, in that position to be able to do this? Oh, so I actually went straight to uh, college after that. So this was my grade 12 when I had this realization. So I, I went to 
college right after and i yeah did you already okay wait 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 at the moment you had this epiphany had you already applied to school and taken the exams you needed to take or it was just kind of right before that so you could start planning that out so this is very funny because the epiphany ha happened in a moment where I was downloading the forms of the colleges I had to apply to. <laughs> Things happen for a reason. Yeah. So is during that hunt of what college should I even apply to? What forms do I need to download is when I saw the website. I'm like, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> dude, I got chills hearing that, man. I got chills, dude. I, that This is like, wow. So, so what do you do next now? Now you start looking, you changed your direction at that point. What kind of schools were you looking? What kind of schools did you have in your head prior to that moment? Uh, mostly mathematics. Uh, wanted to uh, take a major in mathematics. Uh, that was really something I loved. And if I would not have made it to a good mathematics college, I probably would have picked up something which was to do with uh, fine arts itself. Wow. And now you said, I mean, the math can still be important, but did that change your entire scope at that point? Now you wanted to do, say, computer science at that point? Uh, it, it does. And it, it substantially did because the, the amount of, uh, so back in India, how it works is that these colleges, these, or at least the premier colleges have a thing called entrance examination. So you have to study hard for an entrance exam, which then you are graded on a score and basis of which you uh, get an admission into a tier of a college. The top tier obviously goes to the ones who have scored really well, and that's how the fall through happens. So this was now a mad rush to get into one of the top most colleges of the, of the country because uh, if you want to do well, uh, you want to go to the topmost college for it. And, uh, uh, yeah, but this, so this is where the whole, uh, the race starts at, oh, I got now a few months left on me and I got to study hard for that entrance exam and try and make it to the top one that I can, which obviously, I mean, there are no fairy tales, which I did not. So <laughs> quite evidently so from that point, because it's, it's not enough because other kids have been really working hard, uh, for a considerable amount of time, which is nowhere near to the effort that I would have put in in the few months of mine. So our, our last guest, Hannah, also grew up in India, and she said she had studied for like two plus years for that exam because she wanted to get into a computer science program. And she scored something like, she was like ranked nine, under a thousand, like ranked 940 out of like 150,000 kids and she still couldn't get into the computer science program like if you weren't in the top 200 it wasn't gonna happen and she had been studying for like two two and a half years three years for that exam she ended up going into electrical sort of engineering which was super interesting so uh i, I we heard that story like kids starting at 14 15 already studying for that particular exam to try to score into those lower, you know, lower rankings. So, so what happens now that you don't get that ranking that you need to get into the computer science program, which is super competitive, right? What, what, what do you choose to do next? I think uh, at that point, 
uh, when I realized I haven't scored really well, I mean, if I would have, of all the people, Hannah would have been upset now that there's a kid who studies for a few months, scores well, gets computer science. I have been studying for more than two years and I don't get in. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, I settled with uh, like a, uh, an okay-ish college, which was pretty close to my house uh, where I grew up. And uh, the idea was to, I want to do computers itself. And uh, uh, now there's a small intermediate turn in there that I still wasn't sure whether there was a career to be made. So I ended up picking mechanical engineering before computers. Now I did that. I did study that for a little, and there's uh, one of my college professors and she uh, found my love for computers. And uh, she nudged me towards the fact that, hey, I should actually switch my stream now. And this is not where I can ever make a career out of it. Uh, I mean, at that point of time, it was still a passion for me uh, because I still wasn't sure because it was a brand new love in my life that, oh, computers is something I want to do this, etc. But that nudge was enough for me to tip over on the other side and say that, okay, let's apply for a switch of a stream within the college itself which also I got ended up successful with. I don't know whether it was her peddling my file or was I genuinely worthy of a switch, but as one would never know the detail, I got a switch, I got access to computers and that is where it began. You found a backdoor into the computer science program <laughs> is essentially, yeah, that's... And, 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 and being a, uh, 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 historically now an SRE, I, I, that makes sense, right? You put back doors in, so you can uh, you can travel between the matrix, man. So I, I think that makes total sense that you found that back door. So was the so this is a four year program now, right? You're you're in the computer science. Was it everything that you had hoped it would be, or was there any moment where you're like, you know what, this is not what I really want to do? You know, and this is uh, again very interesting. The thing I wanted to do wasn't what I wanted to do. And so our college curriculum was split nicely into two halves every day. There was a half which was about lectures and there was a half which was about labs. So you get free access to labs after that and you can spend the entire rest of the day to do whatever you want. Now, I, I think I've been a very bad student all my life. Uh, you know, it's very hard for me to, I, I want to learn things at my pace. I cannot learn in a competitive setting. Like you put me in a race with 10 other people and I would be like, give up on the moment one itself or the word go. Uh, things have to be understood well before I can take a claim that, okay, now I have learned this and I can actually take a shot at it, be it an examination, be it something. And I mean, and each kid has a different way of learning. Uh, I'm, I'm referring to me as a kid back, I mean, looking back at those years. Uh, so this was tough. And uh, I think the lectures felt outdated to me in some way, because what I was seeing in the lab and what I was studying in a classroom kind of looked disconnected. And when I say disconnected, there was, I wasn't able to imagine how this leads up to that. Now. Remember, I've been sketching. Feedback is very important for me. When I draw that graphite on paper, there is haptic feedback my hand gets. There is, there is instant 
movement that I would get to know that, okay, this is how it's going to come out to be. In absence of that cycle of feedback, it becomes extremely frustrating and limiting to imagine abstractions and just keep imagining them and hoping that one day they would connect into a thing called computer. And that is very frustrating. And that was one of the most limiting parts. And I think uh, for a little period, I, I struggled massively in college, uh, you know, could not score good grades, was probably one among the bottom rankers, uh, et cetera. But I think I was very fortunate to have uh, both my college seniors, my college professors, they were all extremely supportive. You know, they never let me get feel bad about the fact that, oh, you know, just because you've found a few classes means that, oh, you've got to let it go. It's not good. No, they, they were very confident and the camaraderie was great. And one of those incidents happened that in the lab, I got uh, hooked on to uh, a Linux file system. And I was dabbling with it. A couple of seniors were playing with it as well. And I saw them dabbling with a thing called network connection. I mean, now that I know what it is, but back then it only would look like a connector cable, which is plugged into two computers and they do something. Now, another moment happens. I'm like, wait, so there's data in one computer, but you are accessing it via the other computer. And now I'm able to imagine, oh, this is how a website works. Basically, I'm using data from somebody else's computer. I mean, I did not know it's called a server. I would just imagine it to be somebody's computer. So this computer, there's another computer and you can access this data. And this is a moment where I got really latched onto the whole aspect of what networks are. And I think that was a moment that revived my interest in computer science again, that, oh, this is not as boring as I as it has been seeming for the past couple of years, there is much more to it, which is interesting. It goes back to that moment that you had, like, wow. And now you're starting to see a little bit how that moment um, existed. The idea that you were connected to something and it came from another machine. You're starting to visualize the, the moving parts now. So I guess then you take a real interest in networking from that point on. Absolutely. And uh, uh, before I learned uh, any serious programming or, or so writing software, I first learned the art of setting up computer networks. And from that point on, I think in the next six months, I gathered a couple of friends around me. And uh, this was still early days. This was, I think, 2004 still. And uh, uh, our college had a very uh, pedestrian network. Things weren't connected. The hostels weren't connected to the main labs. There was a lot of uh, disconnected pieces. And uh, we came up with this proposal and we proposed to our head of the department that, you know, we're going to centralize all of this. We're going to connect everything to the network. Now, uh, uh, again, uh, stroke of luck. Things had to go right. Maybe they went right. Uh, the, the, the college uh, head of department had no reason to believe us, a bunch of these kids and fools, but he did. And he said, yeah, sure, go ahead and do it. Here is labs are open to you 24 seven from this point of time. And the next six months were a mad rush into learning how networking works, how Linux networking is, how file systems work, everything around it. And 
Six months later, we could actually shift our entire network to a centralized set of servers with all hostels connected, all departments connected. And that is the real first exposure we got into uh, seeing these things work connected. That internet that I've seen. Yeah. Two questions. Two, two, two questions. One, was this connectivity SSH-based, Telnet-based, or were there some sort of web server stuff too where you were connected over browsers? Oh, there was web server as well because when you got uh, when you got, first of all, you got a, the network file systems had to kick in as well. So it wasn't just limited to just SSH. Everything became technically a thin client because you don't want every other computer to have the disk and the storages, etc. So we said, you know, let's bring up some massive machines out there and everything around just becomes a remote login into the Almost machine. like a dumb because terminal. Almost like everything a dumb terminal. A thin, absolutely. Thin client. Yeah. Ah. Nice, nice. And then you would be able to access again the file systems and whether how, whatever little client applications were running on the thin client, you'd you'd be able to access that. Yeah, absolutely. That made and it cheaper too because now you didn't have to spend a lot of money to get that connectivity for another student. It was absolutely. And and you know all the college, uh, I mean uh, the the professors were happy, the kids were happy because what they would do in a lab. They could just get off the machine, go back to the hostel, start their terminal, connect to the network and resume everything. So it just changed lives for everybody from that point onward. And that is, I think that's the real moment where I realized the first time that how powerful this thing can be. So that was that moment where I saw, okay, this is how we imagine. This is how it is truly turning out to be no loss happening. <laughs> Okay, so a couple things. I mean, you're doing that while you're also doing your studies. This isn't some class. You're not getting credit for this. You're not getting paid for that, right? So how hard was it for you to like disconnect from this networking project to do the boring homework and class stuff that you didn't want to do, but you have to do because you got to graduate? I mean, you must have been struggling at times to, to focus on school. Remember, once you latch onto a back door, never leave that back door. <laughs> the same back door that got me into the system was the same back door that would assist me to circumvent the need for sitting in a classroom. Because if you're spending your entire nights in a lab, there's very little energy that you're going to be left with to attend the classroom. So uh, the professor was kind enough. And she could see the work that we we're doing. And somewhere they took upon the belief that these kids will are doing the right thing. So they allowed us to skip lectures. Wow. That's, I mean, what you were doing was a massive service for free. I'm putting in quotes for the university. I mean, like you should have gotten some credit or something for and were they shocked the first time you connected a thin client to the, right? Because they're thinking, yeah, we'll just give these kids some access, nothing will happen. I mean, the first time you you showed the director or the head of the department that you got some of this working, what, what were their reactions? Were they just trying to act cool, like yeah, of course, or were they like, wow, you 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 got it. you're starting to pull this off? I think uh, uh, I think it was 
the confidence we could see in the uh, in in them because you know i say this uh and sorry this is kind of off topic but i say this you know like we as humans are wherever we stand today or i mean i i'm, I'm sure this is true for almost all of humanity wherever whoever stands is a lot of chances and luck going right no matter how much we say that you know we are all self made we are this and that but a lot of these things just happened to happen and we are only fortunate and lucky to be in those moments where they aligned well yes i mean a lot of credit to us that we gathered those moments etc but we cannot really deny the fact that there's a lot of things that happened by chance that happened to us you know like luck has to align with it and again i'm not i'm not saying everything to destiny etc no i'm not saying that but i'm saying that we there is things that we don't control and they happen and they align and we happen as a part of it i think in that moment if i go back i don't think anybody can rationalize that moment was was the head really believing in whatever we were saying did they they believed their gut they took a punt on us they took they took they placed a bet and when they saw it coming i think we all then start committing to it more you know when the first time the computer would have connected and we would have resonated and we said hey here's what we got working maybe the person saw maybe the person saw something that you know that okay if they can push a little further maybe they can do more i won't claim to say that oh we had imagined this is how thin clients would be because we never knew what these things are we were figuring it out you know we we were trying to read books from library because internet was still a new age thing back then so we would read what's there in the library hope to find something which is there which can assist us uh get past that gather those uh, i mean back then ubuntu installations used to come on those cds uh try to do that figure those things out and you know things just fall in place one after the other and a lot of these experiments failed i think what helped us and what helped the the head as well to answer the question things not working did not deter us we were just a rampage on to it that you know something will work something will not work something will work something will not work the whole passion and curiosity of it just led to one thing after the other so what i'm saying is i don't want to take a claim to say i had imagined a thin client and i got it no absolutely not we got lucky to keep moving forward and not get deterred by any external factors so i had a seventh grade teacher that would beat me in ping pong at recess every day and i would say to him Yeah, you got lucky in this game. And you know what he would say to me every single time I said you got lucky? He goes, "Bill, you got to be good to get lucky." And I've never like <laughs> forgotten that. So, when the kids tell me I got lucky, I'm like, oh, "You got to be good. You got to be and there's some truth to that, right? Like you got to be good and there and present to get to that moment where you got lucky that you found that thing that that helped work. And those are the magical moments that get you through all the heart heartache and heart you know pain when things aren't working to like you want that moment you keep working towards that moment because it's such a high in that moment when something works you just want to keep having it over and over and over again it drives it you're now like a net, net linux vax mainframe connectivity guru at this point as you graduate um university so is your thought coming out of this this undergraduate degree to get into the workforce or are you thinking i'm going to continue to to get more education what's your thoughts as you're now about to graduate 
another uh, really funny thing happens after this. Uh, so as a part of our, of our curriculum, we are supposed to spend some time in the industry for some industrial training. And uh, this is this is just what as a part of the curriculum was, you know, like you got to spend uh, six months or a year into it. Now, in this moment, I had a friend and, you know, we are all applying for internships, etc. here and there, but I'm so into this that I don't want to go too far distracted into something. Now, there's a friend of mine and he, his brother knows somebody in something. I don't know what these things are because now I know they're called startups. You know, so, but back then, you know, like from what I heard, like, oh yeah, I got a friend, you know, my brother has a friend and they're working on something and they're looking for a, a kid to help them out with certain, you know, stuff. And so I checked with this guy, Hey, are you going to take up on that? He says, no, man, it looks too small. They don't even have an office, etc." I'm like, okay, I mean, it doesn't hurt. I can go. So I walk into these bunch of people. I enter a room. It was a rented apartment. Uh, there were four people sitting in a room and feels very much like a lab. And they ask me, who are you? I impersonate to be that friend. And I say, I'm that guy. No way. <laughs> At some point you got to tell them you're not, but go on. Yeah. So like, I'm that guy. And they're like, okay, what do you do? I'm like, so I mean, you know, and I'm impersonating him. So I say, I have a brother and I'm so foolish because I'm a kid that I'm like, you know, I have a brother who sends me here. Now, obviously the guy knows the brother and the friend as well, but well, who am I? I'm just a, I'm just a young kid, right? So uh, got nothing to lose. We don't think through these failures. Oh my God. Oh my God. They know you're not that person. Absolutely. Oh oh, God, clearly dude. they don't. They clearly know it's not me. So. <laughs> okay. So I like, okay, what, what brings you here? I like, and I heard you guys do this thing and uh, they were building, a, uh, and this was back in 2005, they were building a SMS based banking system and pretty new age for that time and uh, I'm like okay cool i mean I, I don't know what this does but i've been like i know you do stuff with computers i know have some computers background i want to learn and see how it works like, cool uh show me what you got and you know like we start talking and uh, i did not know much about python back then i mean i had just seen it that hey this is a scripting language i can do some stuff with it and I open VI and I write certain shell scripts and, you know, we are discussing it's just a quick exchange, you know, guy's not grilling me because obviously he's amused at first I'm lying about my name and now he just want to go through the conversation and uh, he talks about it. Now, the interesting thing is I open VI, but I don't know how to exit VI. So, yeah, so I open it up, I write some stuff. So the guy gets a hang of it. Right. And he says, cool. Uh, you want to intern with us cool you come you can start and by the way what's your name <laughs> so I mean, the guy's kind the guy's very kind you know so i show up as that other guy for the next three days what uh, yeah everybody's and, calling uh, you by by this other guy's name for three by this days. other guy's name yeah and they're just waiting days. to see how long you're gonna play this out oh absolutely 
Yeah. Oh my god. And the third day I feel bad about this. You know, I feel so horrible and disgusted about this. I say that, you know, guys, I lied. You know, that's not me. I said, we know who you are and we know that who you are not. So stop pretending. <laughs> wow. What's the what's the life lesson learned there? Uh, I'll tell you the life lesson learned. I'll, I'll tell you the next detail. So this guy is actually no ordinary bloke. This guy is actually one of the first authors of KD. His name is Sartat Singh Kang. And he was back in his Melbourne University. He started writing KD along with a bunch of other folks, three other folks. So he's one of the earliest contributors. So a very humble gentleman who obviously like was already deep into the world of Linux, open source, KD, and actually sees me. I don't know what he sees. Uh, maybe he just sees a young kid who's trying to fool around. And the life lesson learned there was, is, <clears throat> is there are things that you do where you see a spark in things, you know, and this is what I continue to use when I hire people today. You know, when I see these young engineers come in, there's a moment that I'm looking for. You know, this this spark in them that this, 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 how would I say, unassumed pressure to do something well that they have. And that is what I'm looking for in people as well. And I think the guy actually showed a lot of confidence in me when won that moment. And uh, uh, then he nudged me towards uh, Google Summer of Code, etc. because technically I was still a part of college and I could continue to contribute there. And I think that's where my engineering journey started. I wrote the first Python parsers of the KDE environment and uh, just went deep into those systems, got hooked on to the world of open source, contributing, uh, understanding how these communities work. And I think that was a pivotal moment to shift towards computer science engineering quite late into the college. So I learned networking, I learned a bit of scripting, I learned a bit of fundamentals, but never really got a hang of writing full-blown software until then. So I think what this guy is showing you as a an older, say more mature sort of human being and engineer is that he saw a kid who really wanted to work there and didn't know any other way to get in and allowed that to happen until you were ready to finally admit it. Like if you had gone two weeks, then I think it would have been bad. I think the fact that you went three days was like, okay, like, and I appreciate that. I, if I was that person who I am today, I would have done the exact same thing. I would have allowed you to play it out, see how long you were going to take it. But it just proved to me how bad you really wanted to be. I'd rather have somebody who really wants to be there than somebody who doesn't, right? I think that's what what they saw. I mean, obviously, we don't want to lie, but you did what you felt you had to do to get to to get in there, which I think is interesting. But that's an internship while you're in university. So, so what happens now that as you graduate? Do they, are they capable of hiring you? Is that is that gig over? What? Yeah, and you know, like I continued working with them for a almost a substantial amount of time till the two thousand eight crisis or a meltdown happened. Somewhere during that period, I completed my uh, degree, etc., and all that. You know, it happened on the side because now so hooked on to working that. I'd lost all thoughts of that. Yeah, there's a college back there to complete as well. 
did you end up graduate? Did you get the degree? Yeah, yeah you just kind absolutely. of did a part time. Yes. Yeah, yeah. During, part-time. during the process, I completed that. Yeah. Plus, they were paying you at that point then, right? So this was like a, a paying job. Uh, I mean, I didn't ask for money to be honest, uh, but I mean, I didn't. I mean, I thought that you know, like uh, as long as it covers my commute and my food expenses, I'm good. But uh, I mean. Uh, if I look back, you know, it was, yes, it was my first paying job. You could think of it like, you know, what, what, what must it be back then? I think $40 a month. But you didn't need more. I mean, maybe, I mean, you could have had more than that, but, but you didn't need more than that. And the experience you were getting at the time was, was so valuable. So it's, it's amazing. It's, it's invaluable, you know, like it's, it's, and I think that is very important because at that point of time, you're not doing it for uh, money or anything. You're doing this because there is so much fun that you're having and getting those things built. You know, like the again, I go back to the part when you are when you are building something, you're building because you want to build it. You you so want to build it. You're not concerned by hey, uh, this is what the value of the outcome is going to be. No, like I want to spend that time learning how to get this thing done because that's the most important thing. But you still have to be able to support yourself. So you have to be able to have a place to sleep and buy food. You don't have to be driving a Porsche, but yeah, like you still <laughs> have to have enough to sustain uh, for the things you needed. So were you living at home at the time then, or was $40 a month enough to have a flat roommate's food? Oh, no, absolutely not a flat, crashing with friends and occasionally going back home as well because many times I would end up pulling all-nighters at work because the work just got so much of me that I could not stop writing software. I just loved it so much that there was no point. The thought of being away from it, I, I know it sounds like very, uh, like, you know, like movie style, but it's not. You know, like Once you find something, you get hooked on to it, you don't want to get away from it. You know, you... It, this is the third this is the third time I'm gonna use this analogy. And I've used it on the last few podcasts because my wife started a boot camp. And it's the only way I describe it. It's like crack cocaine. You got hooked. Absolutely. And you gotta keep having the high. And it takes a long time to learn how to get to get your your life balanced again, especially when you're in your twenties. Because you got nothing really else going on necessarily. And you're just hooked. You want the high. If there's a high to it. Yeah. So in fact, now when I look back, I mean, now this is the most, the second important life lesson I got from this guy. He would push me out of office every weekend, you know, and say, I don't want to see you here, you know, and he would make it sound like, you know, you're consuming too much office time. You're consuming office coffee, you know, like there's too much internet. No, we got to shut down. We got to go somewhere because what he's trying to do is he's trying to put real world into my perspective that, you know, don't get consumed by it so much that you lose what the real life is. And uh, uh, yeah, I thank him for that. Thanking, I thank him in, I don't, I don't think I can thank him enough. But if I look back, I realize that how subtly he was placing these life lessons into my head that while it's important to be consumed by what you love, but it's also important that you have a real life that you got to pay attention to. And in some way or the other, you know, your friends, your people. Yeah. I, I'm like him. I didn't have people around me in my twenties. Um, you'd meet somebody who says, Hey, you gotta, your, your life, you gotta balance your life. And my brain was always like, no, I need to make money right now. I got a house, I got kids, I got, um, 
And it's not until you get into your forties at some point we start realizing, man, how much life did I lose trying to get where I'm at right now? And I'm happy where I'm at, but how much of life did I lose sitting in an office? And it's probably him also having that regret of not listening and, but having an opportunity, not saying it to you, but forcing you into some quality balance of life while you're there. Absolutely. And I'll tell you a very sneaky way how he did it. He banned laptop into the office. Now, if we shut the office and desktop is the only way, then I'm dishooked from it, right? Like I'm, I'm unhooked. Now there's no way I can have access to a computer. And so again, I got irritated a couple of times, but uh, I think I had too much respect to say that, you know, if, if a person says something, it might be for the best of my good. So now 2008 hits, we have a financial crisis all over the world, thanks to uh, really bad investments around bad mortgages. Um, you're, I guess at that point out of a job. So what happens in 2008? Uh, I mean, by that time the acquisition had happened and uh, you know, I was just an intern with them. Effectively, they had no reason to be benevolent, but they were. Uh, so they, I mean, they, when the acquisition happened right before 2008, they were benevolent enough to have a good payout. Uh, and at that age, uh, while the crisis happened to affect the company, but the payouts had already happened. And uh, so it kind of leaves you with enough confidence into a thing that, you know, startups can be the way of the world going forward. So that thing had entered my head now that, you know, in a way you're still young. Like I was probably what, 22? 25, 26, uh, 22. Oh, yeah, 2008? I think I was 22. Yeah. So I'm 86 born. So I was 22. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 2002, you graduated there. You would have been about 17 and another eight years. All right. That's fair. Yeah. So 22 and I get this idea in my head that, you know, I'm again, looking back, if I go back into that age and I think, why am I doing something next is I want to be this guy, you know, I've seen him do things. I'm really in awe of this guy, you know, and that is how you pick up mentors in life. You know, that you want to emulate some bit of this because you're too young and too raw to have a personality of your own. So you kind of start absorbing reflections of what others are around you. And, you know, I want to be with this guy and like, yeah, I mean, if, if, if he's good at technology, if, I mean, and he does this thing called a startup, so must I. You know, like, and that is, uh, I mean, monkey see, monkey do, you know, so that, that is a phase that we are in at that point of time. And so, uh, I decided to get into this and have an idea of my own and start doing things. And I started dabbling with a couple of ideas around here and there, uh, for the next couple of years until I hit. But you have cash, you have cash from the payout. That's gonna give you the opportunity to do it. So now you're like, okay, this is the way it works. Everybody, and I heard this story from Hannah too. It's like everybody in university goes off and tries to do, tries to basically start it in a startup. Uh, I met these people, they were doing a startup. I met those people, they were doing a startup. It's almost like your first job out of university is almost startup, unless you go to Samsung or maybe you do that in your second job. But I feel like almost everybody's trying to build something almost out of university out of these engineering schools. So what's the idea for, so you decide you're gonna tinker around for a couple of years trying to find a product, but my guess is your real world experience domain is either networking or whatever domain they were working on. 
right? So what is it? What problems are you kind of prototyping over these two years that you thought would be potential businesses? So, uh, and along this way, you know, because exposure was either writing these uh, uh, server space. Now it was either networking or even in the startup because they were doing banking over SMS, all jobs oriented towards either writing these high uh, performance Solaris systems, writing parsers, compilers, because you want to deal with these SMSCs or asterisk gateways, etc. So very largely, absolutely uh, back server space, infrastructure, those kind of problems. So very lucky to actually have hit infrastructure problems right in early in my career. Uh, because, you know, when you start on the other side, you'll do a lot of application development, but it takes a lot of a journey to transition to the other side to understand how does this really tether back into those into those green, blue blinking light ropes, as as I would say it. You know, but uh, if you get exposed to it sooner, uh, the imaginations become clearer in your head because now you know exactly how things move, how the wiring is done, how the data transfer, what protocols are, yada yada. The I mean, I continue to dabble around that. And this is where I had a very audacious thing to do because obviously neither did I have the skill to do it at that point of time, nor was the technology right to do it. Uh, we were trying to convert audio to text synthesis. You know, so when you speak something, can you translate it into text? And that was an idea. Why that problem? I know people were working on that problem in in the late nineties, cause we were doing some IVR stuff with phone and voice detection. Exactly. Exactly. We're doing that in the late nineties, um, with tech that already existed, but why that problem now, 10 years later, why, why 2008, 2009, you, you want to work on text to speech essentially, right? Or speech to text. SMS was limiting. It could only take 160 characters, 140. Now, because of this SMS banking, I'm like, oh, this is so limiting, you know, like I have to pull out the phone, type these 140 characters. All I can write is 140. I can just say it, pay bill $2, you know, like. Oh, you want to do that on the phone? Yeah. Oh, run it, build. Wow. But you got to integrate that with the existing chat. Okay. I mean, this is a, a lower level integration into the phone. So you can have that option to speak chat to any app as input. That's that That's correct. Because if I could first solve that problem, I could solve other problems with it because this itself was missing as a tool, you know, and the, the underlying facility was absent or, or I did not know of it in a consumer manner that, you know, there was easy to consume things that I could just deploy and get this, get this going with. There was none. I mean, I do remember there were there were media streaming servers at that point of time, Red 5, et cetera. They had come in, you know, using Flash, you could start recording audio, send that to server space to process. So some of this basic stuff was there, but the synthesis was not freely available to be done. Yeah, no, I mean, in 2008, this isn't an easy problem. Compute problem on the phone, networking is slow. Absolutely. Yeah, and integration. So. You played with that for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, obviously, and that wasn't going to work. Uh, me and my co-founder, as they would say it, I mean, we're both highly underskilled. If you look back, there was no reason it could have worked. If it did, it would have just been pure fluke. So 
uh, that didn't go out well. Uh, we could not really build at a level that we wanted to. And that's the first time that we got hit by this idea that you got to sell something as well. You can't just keep building it, you know, and the, the sellability aspect of a product was, was a realization that I had for the first time. I mean, until now I only knew this technology, you know, I, I, I never knew that when you have to, when you have to think of these startups, there are two parts to it. There's a product and then there's a business angle as to it as well. I mean, this technology and this business and the product unites them both. This is a realization that I did not have. And I don't think this is a realization I had going still late into my career for a little longer as well after that. And, but the, the viability, the business aspect of things started to hit me that I got to spend some time learning these as well. Yeah. Cause one of the first questions I always ask someone when they tell me they're in a startup is what's your revenue model? How do you plan on somebody giving you a dollar? And I don't need a dollar day one, but by year three, how, how are, how are you going to get somebody to give you a dollar? Cause somebody's not going to give you a dollar. It's not viable. And that's what you're realizing. I need a revenue model that occurs in a reasonable amount of time. And I like the idea of a dollar. Are you willing to give me a dollar for, are you willing to give me $10 for that? I mean, how many dollars are you willing to give me for that pain point that you're having? Right? Yeah. So, so 2008 through 2010, you're dabbling 2008, 2010, you're dabbling. You realize that tech isn't going to work. Plus there's no revenue model around that. So what happens now in 2010 after you kind of go through those two years? Uh, so one of the, uh, co-founders of the earlier startup where I was interning or impersonating to begin with, uh, he, he reaches out and he's looking for a co-founder to start an edge tech idea. Say that again, edge tech? Edge tech, education tech. Oh, so education. Okay. Okay. Gotcha. This idea is very interesting because he says, I want to build because, and he starts off saying that, you know what, nobody wants to learn in a competitive environment. And that line was enough for me to hook back into my journey. And that's where I started, right? Because I've been a bad student. I'm like, yeah, I get it. What you want to say next? You know, I so get the problem that you're telling me that people want to learn at their own pace. And there is so much to learn via soft skill training, etc., which cannot be taught in a formal setting. So the, the entire business and product was around that. So for the next four odd years of my life, I spent doing that. You're building a, is it like a platform like what is Khan Academy today? A, a platform where you can have materials that you can learn at your own pace, uh, that kind of. So, so what was the name of that um, platform you built, and what happened after four years? Uh, it was called Seminars.com. You say a seminar, but change the first e with an i, and. Uh, uh, that was uh, what our company was called. Uh, so we're basically, yeah. So co-founded that, worked with uh, on that idea, raised some some amount of uh, funds as well to live into it. Uh, did that for four odd years, but uh, didn't really work out well uh, <clears throat> for X number of reasons. And so that was the next four year of my journey, trying to understand what product, what business, and. Uh, uh, you know, how, how do things evolve and as from the, so g give me two, give me two kind of core reasons why that ended up not working out. What, what was it that you look back now on and say, we, we missed the boat on this, or we just didn't do that. 
one was uh, so there was this uh, moment. <clears throat> uh, so we had a, a large customer who went online, and <clears throat> in the next ten minutes uh, or so, or fifteen or so, we we managed to hit a one million hits on the website, and that is how crazy it went. But because we weren't ready for that kind of scale, uh, the site crashed. The and uh, <clears throat> for no obvious reasons of the the for a logic fault, but actually the scale fault, uh, we couldn't scale that up. So we could not. So we we had we had pegged too much on that moment. That hey, we're gonna raise venture capital after this thing goes well. Let's launch it. This is gonna be viral. We'll 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 build a vibe so that you know uh, we're, we're we're too protective of the equity by then and said you know like, we don't let go, let this hit well. We, we'll gain some momentum. Uh, Udemy etc. were still coming up at that point of time. You know this was back in twenty late twenty twelve etc. And uh, uh, so or Coursera as well. You know these things were just picking up at that point of time and we could not hit it. So we kind of lost that moment and. In that, and that is one thing that I mean. Obviously, I could not have changed given my own learn, my our understanding or our lack of anticipation that we're gonna go so viral. Uh, that was one pivotal moment that I could actually say on on uh, on a thing that where we failed to pick that momentum, and that ripples further, right? Because now you don't have that, so your plan of having. Uh, raised uh, uh, any venture capitalism later would not work out because you were so pegged on this single moment, so that didn't work out. So that was one and two, I would say, is that uh, overall uh, understanding of how to build lean products would be another self-introspection if I look back and understand why did it not work the way it would have. It's really hard to close the door on these business, especially when it's four years sort of of your life and your time and any money you also put into it. So what made you finally just close the door on it? What what was your, how did you finally close the door? You said, I'm just not working on this anymore. We're, we're done. Uh, during the course, I got uh, uh, married as well uh, during this journey. And, uh, uh, you know, like uh, I've been with that person for a fairly long time and she was very, she is very supportive and you know, like always been supportive of my my fascinations, my ideas, my pursuits, etc. And uh, uh, you know, she raised this question that you know, I think I don't think it's working out for you. You know, you are consumed because what ends up happening is that, uh, and this is the the hard part of being an entrepreneur that nobody tells you. You know, that you become a socially irritable person because you are starting to measure you as your business outcome. We tend to see our failures, our business failures as our failures. It becomes personal. You know, you walk out into a social setting. The first person when anybody asks you is, hey, what are you up to these days? You go into a shell. You 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 think that you, you have failed yourself, everybody around you, and that everybody is after you. You become irritable. You become cranky. And, uh, you know, like your, your personality and demeanor changes for the bad, you know, it, you, it becomes so deep rooted into you that that scar tissue 
that even when it heals, it's a mark out there, you know, and takes a lot of time and an era to come out of it. And when that starts happening, people who are close around you, you know, they start giving this perspective and that, you know, it's changing you who you are as a person. And now it's maybe time to not look at that, you know, and, and do something else because it's consumed too much of you and you don't want to, uh, the, the inevitable outcomes will become only worse from this point on. So, uh, I, I, if, if you're able to understand what I'm saying. Oh no, dude, I, th that is, it's a great point and it's so true. And when my first business failed, uh, originally my ex-wife did not want me to start the business. She wanted me to stay as a salaried employee. And I told her, there's no way I'm going to be able to support five kids as a salaried employee. I need to try to become an entrepreneur. And when that business failed and we were like several hundred thousand dollars in debt and underwater, it made that my relationship with her even worse because all she could do is look at me and say, I told you, I told you, I told you not to do that. I told you. So all the people that are kind of giving you the negative when you start something are now waiting in line to tell you, I told you so. And it just makes it even worse because it just compounds the idea that, it, that I just failed and I got to start. And for me, it was, I'm 40 years old and I got to start over and I got five young kids, right? Um, and I did, I started over and I've had to start over twice in my life. Cause after divorce, you basically lose everything too. So I'm not afraid of starting over anymore because if you stay positive and you don't give up, you know, like you were saying, opportunities will come your way and you have to just open up those doors when they come at you. So I, I, I fully appreciate what you're saying because you're right. That's, and that's a great way to measure it. I never thought about that. And having somebody in your life that's able to say to you, hey, you're turning into a vampire. You know, you used to be happy and, and, and fun to be around. And now you're sucking all the happiness out of the room. Maybe it's time to change. You finally decide that's it. This has to end. You, you do that. Now, I, after my first business failing miserably, I went back to become a salaried employee because I had to try to make enough money, all right, to pay mortgages and food and all that. And I did that for two years. It was, it was a tough two years of my life going back and just being uh, an employee again. And I, two years and we started Arden after that, which was scary, but did you do the same thing? Did you kind of then just kind of jump back into being an employee? What did you do after that first business? You had to finally walk away. Yeah. So, you know, when I did that, I took a smallish kind of break and, uh, you know, like, uh, I think I mentioned this in the, in, in the earlier part of our chat, you have to be lucky to meet the right people. And I think if I look back, I've been really lucky to meet all kinds of amazing people on my life, you know, like, uh, and they've been very supportive and amazing. And this is where I met, uh, another friend who, uh, who, so he's a Dutch guy. Uh, you know, he was, uh, he had an office very close to our office. Uh, we were two floors above each other, uh, and very supportive as well. Uh, through the journey. Now, obviously you could see this, you know, like, hey, this is not working out. And, you know, he said, why don't you, and he kind of knew how this works because he's kind of uh, five, six years older to me and uh, has been in this uh, space of entrepreneurship all his life. So he knows how this works out, right? So in his own, in his own way, without making it sound like a favor, he 
basically goes about saying that, you know, like, why are you, why you're still figuring it out? Why don't you come and help me out? I need a lot of help in my work. You know, like you're a technology guy. You like dabbling with technology. I'm doing this thing. So why don't you come over? Subtly, he's basically pumping uh, cash into my life and, uh, you know, and helping me recover from that whole thing. And, and you know, and not as a favor, because in, in process of it, he knows that I like technology. So I'm actually going to start getting consumed with something and then start getting distracted in the right way. So uh, yeah, I do that for with him for uh, a good, uh, I would say six, eight uh, odd months till, or maybe nine months. I don't even remember the time frame. Uh, you know, like uh, we travel around, we went to, uh, you know, like go places around in Rotterdam, Amsterdam, see those places around, you know, it takes a good break uh, from me in my life, from what I was doing and helping me recover from that entire situation, you know, and uh, off when I was ready, he was himself the person who said, you know, maybe you should do something nicer now, you know, and, you know, like this, this is, you're not going to build these uh, applications for the rest of your life. Like maybe you can start doing something. So, you know, like, and at that moment, I realized that, oh, actually, my, so, I mean, he's a very close friend of mine that, oh, he was just basically helping me get back on my feet. So t t two things there that I want to kind of make points around. I, these are things I try to teach my kids kind of all the time. The universe is constantly wanting to balance itself and bringing people into your life all the time. You have to be open sort of to receive them. But the other thing, which is so important, and it's really hard when you're 19 and 20, if anyone, like, you think you could do everything on your own. Yeah, can't. If people are offering you help, you have to say yes to it. When I first met my my current wife, she was very much somebody that was would get aggravated if she had to get help from somebody. And I had to teach her, you have to stop this attitude. If somebody's offering help, accept it. Even if they're not going to do something exactly the way you want it done, your life's going to be better for it. And this is what I'm hearing, right? This person came into your life just at the right moment. You could have said no, but you said yes. And you, you, you took the help and it helped you over that year to kind of recover. That's to me, the story here, like being, being humble enough and knowing when you have to say yes to help, even if you don't want it. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, like, uh, you, you have to, allow people to hear their perspective and see it from them and can't be just consumed by uh and again it's very tough in that moment too because you're you are in that negativity right remember like coming out of a, a failure of a startup you're, you're you're trying to see that oh is this guy trying to prove a point etc so it just happens that you tend to trust somebody and it works out well so yeah i mean as i said i, I probably got lucky again Surely. You know, I had the, you know, that movie, Yes Man with, um, oh God, now I can't remember the actor's name, but I had, Jim uh, yeah, Jim Carrey. So the 15 year old, I'd say about eight months ago, went into this sort of no mode, like everything was no, didn't want to do nothing. So I had her watch the movie. And then I said, for the next month, uh, I want you to try to say yes more. I mean, obviously don't say yes to everything. If it's immoral and ethical, we're not saying yes. But I, I want you to say yes more. If it's not unethical and not immoral and it's just you just don't want to do it, I, I want you to do it. She literally did that for a good month, month and a half. And, and she had to admit that her life was 
maybe a little bit better, right? She she had more experiences. She um, she went back into wanting to say no more, but but at least for that moment in time, she got to experience not saying no to just about everything. I think it was cool. I totally relate to that. Yes. Okay, yes. we got like 15 minutes left, and I and I and I want to get to how you get to last nine. When when did you start this company? Last nine. This was 2020. In a couple of process, there were a couple of startups, a couple of exits. Uh, we can skim past that because there's something that uh, interesting in all of this. You know, like now, and this goes back into my first exposure with computers, right? You know, like we're speaking about moment all the time. You know, like and how I articulate this, and uh, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but this is very important because in there was a moment when I loved computers. There was that moment when I saw the network. There was this moment when we lost the business, you know, like goods and bad, then moment, this whole space that we are in, you know, like this, this, this distributed apps, this computing, these mobile apps that we have come on to think of it, right? All of these are trying to capture a moment of your life. You want to pull out your phone and you want to tweet in a moment. You use Instagram, you're seeing a cute pet or, or your kid or somebody or sunset. You know, pull out your phone and you want to put that photo. You want to order some food. You're feeling something in that moment, right? You want to you want to order a food because you're feeling that taste in you, with you. You want to consume that. And this is very moment, in the moment. If the moment is lost and the transaction isn't made, it may or may not come back for the user or the business. This is why modern businesses, modern software relies too heavily on these moments we converted because they have become a part of our lifestyle. In that moment when I decide to watch a movie on Netflix, I'm pressing a button and there's an experience that's going to consume me. If that video doesn't play, I may go out and play with my friends, a baseball or a snooker or, or cycling. You know, I may lose the thought of it altogether because that is how we are these days, right? In all of this. So it's important for all of these things that we do that inevitably all of us are trying to capture these moments of magic, moments of, of uh, epiphany, a moment of celebration, a moment of desire, a moment somewhere. And which is important that they have to be reliable because that is where we lose as, as a business. And that is where the idea of being more and more reliable as a modern software started hitting me, you know, because earlier I could not explain why are these nines? What is the fascination about it? But when I translate it this way, I understand that why does a business have to be up? Because if you lose those moments, those customers may not come back ever to you and may look for an alternate solution. And who knows what happens in that moment to the other Like Maybe they start liking the other platform better. You know, like in that moment when Uber doesn't work and I go to Lyft, maybe I become a Lyft customer thereafter. I don't know. You know, like you don't know. And that is the whole. Now, to do that, there's this chaos. You know, people watching dashboards all the time, trying to make sense of graphs of one of those three possible outcomes that they could have achieved, either contain, circumvent, or communicate, you know, like of a failure, because obviously code fixes are hard to do in a real time. And that tool chain to be built is very custom, time consuming, takes takes at least four or five member team north of a million dollar expenditure, even before you can actually build an internal tool chain, which can help you take those decisions faster. All of that can be productized. 
can be short-circuited. And that is the belief with which last nine was born that we got to productize these tool chains that are inevitably built in-house by these large companies to capture this software essence, which is constant 24-7 uptime. Does that kind of explain? It does. Uh, the, the analogy that I kind of bring, bring to this is I'm going to bring it into sports in Miami. For those people who are sports fans, Miami is the worst town for sports fans. I feel sorry for all the sports that, that operate here. Because if you're not winning, like championship level winning, nobody's coming to the event. And when I talk to people here, and this is different, like if you're in New York or Green Bay or smaller, say, sort of markets where the sports team is central to almost life. In Florida, it's just one other thing that you can do here. And so if they're not winning, then I could go on my boat. I could go do this. I can go do that. There's like a million things you can do here. So why should I spend time going to a game when they're losing? That's not a good experience I want to have. It's not a way of life like it is in other places. I find that sad because I, I love sports, right? But it's it's the same thing. If If the Netflix button didn't work, well, I've got 20 other choices. I've got Disney, HBO. Hulu, uh, whatever it is, right? We all subscribe to at least four or five other sort of streaming services. So am I disappointed I couldn't see that movie? Of course I am. But at the same time, I'm going to get over it fairly quickly because uh, at least today there's so many other choices. I'm, I know when I was a kid, there weren't many choices. I had three stations on my black and white TV when I was in, in middle school, and I had to settle on whichever one was a clear picture. That was it, right? And you would settle. There's no settling anymore, right? You quickly move on. So that, that moment you're talking about in terms of consumer choice, right? When you got that consumer right there and you don't satisfy that request, this is real estate. The whole real estate industry now from a compute perspective is about the first person that gets the lead, that, that reaches back out to that person on the lead I might be interested in, in, in something real estate wise, and I'm putting my email in and I'm filling out forms. If they don't get back to me within a minute, they've lost me because I've already talked to somebody else who, who did. So this moment you're describing is so critical in today's world because nobody has patience. We want everything now. And if we don't get it now, there's not, not like immediate gratification. We're moving on to somebody who will give it to us. So yeah, right. That's you're burning territory in seconds, not days anymore. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, great, great analogy. I'm going to use that. You know, and uh, uh, yeah, and this is that's exactly how Lassen was born, and so this was start of 2020. Yeah. So what you're trying to say is, look, I've got the tools that are going to keep fires at bay, and I'm going to, and I have the tools that are going to help you be able to, to respond to your customer before anybody else, only because your system's gonna be up longer and be more responsive longer throughout the day. So you don't lose that lead, you don't lose that interaction. You're fulfilling the self-gratification that that person wants. Absolutely, and how do you do that? With those smoke sensors. 
at the first sight of a potential hazard, you're basically looking for bad signs and you deploy them everywhere, you know, like through your infrastructure, at the mouth of the gateway, at the CDN, you know, here's where a service degradation is happening, where it does, it never used to be 98% at this time of the day, but today it is. Something's got to go wrong. Have a look. You know, these are those early warnings that you deploy all over the system because, you know, make sure nothing reaches that moment. And that's what the whole reliability is about. You know, like whenever people are talking about reliability, this is the essence with which SREs are trying to operate at, or at least the two SREs. So one of the things I find fascinating about social media apps, whether it's Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, is that you put your phone down because you're not going to look and you start to get this itch. And I, I call that itch the moment of, of, of maybe. You start to get an itch that maybe somebody's reached out to me. Maybe there's something there that I want to interact with. It's this moment of maybe that drives everything related to social media today. In fact, if you don't create this moment of maybe, you're going to fail as an application today. It's everything you do has to drive this idea that maybe I should pick up the phone because there's something that I'm missing. But when it comes to your sort of product, it has to be the opposite, that I can never be wondering if maybe there's an alert that I have to be looking at, or maybe there's a problem. In fact, if I'm using your product and I'm constantly opening up your app because maybe there's an issue, then I think you're on the opposite. You failed. I, I need to feel confident that if something's happening, I'm going to be told. I don't have to worry about the maybe of it all. It's really interesting. You're kind of on the opposite of this moment of, of, of maybe. Yeah, I love that. I've actually noted it down this moment of maybe, you know, because everything is anti-moment of maybe, you know, and there are these tools that you're going to deploy, you know, like various kinds, you know, like I don't go into the details of the business there, but you know, there are these tools that you deploy everywhere, which actually give that certainty and guarantee, you know, and it starts by a lot of these things underneath, you know, the reliance and the confidence that the 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 observability data lake is going to support which is why we had to build a time series database because you know you're collecting all that data building graphs but what you realize is hey my underlying my underlying observability database itself is not serving five nine so how can i deliver five nines on my software you know those decisions go into the making of it to to have these solve problems at every layer you know problem of collect data how do we make sure that there's fundamentally a solid layer where we can actually have all the data that we can actually visualize on? On top of it, not just look and build these tools which are trying to extract knowledge to eliminate these moments of maybe. Yeah, I love that. Okay, we are totally out of time, dude. And like I say with every guest, I, I could talk for another hour here, but we're out of time. And I love your story. And dude, I learned so much here. There's just the, the beginning of the picture not being what you want the world to experience, right? Digital, like that moment, these moments of your system trying to say there is no moments of maybe because if there's a problem, we're going to know about it before anybody else. And you're going to know about it before anybody else. And not only that, you're going to have options to, to, to deal with this without needing to call a developer and go through that particular, like I love all that, that kind of stuff. So that's, that's brilliant, dude. This, this, was, this has been a great, for me, a great show. I can't wait to get back home and tell my wife some of the things uh, 
that I experienced talking today. Thank you so much for all of that. Thank you so much, Bill. I'm going to end it with a yes. <laughs> so if anybody wants to reach out to you after listening to the show, uh, what's the best way that they can do that? And we'll also put that in the show notes. Uh, hello at last9.io is where you find me or all of us. Brilliant. Okay. Well, this was the Arden Labs podcast with Piyush and Bill Kennedy signing off. Thanking you for joining us and hope to see everybody again. Soon.